Psalm chapter 16. <clears throat> I want to start by reading it together. Encourage you to follow along here. If you have your Bibles, absolutely open up. Encourage you to bring your Bibles. I know we have the verses up here. This, this is a lot up here to do with all the cross-references and so forth, because I know oftentimes I have many of those, but I always encourage you to bring your Bible. If you need a Bible, we'll give you a Bible. And by the way, it's okay to take a pen and write in your Bible. We encourage you to do that, to take notes and so forth. And uh, that, that, that's, there's nowhere that says, thou shalt not write in the Word. Now, don't add to it or cross stuff out and you'll be fine, but taking notes, that's a good thing. So, Psalm chapter 16. A victim of David, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord, my goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer nor take up their names on my lips. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a, a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night sessions. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life in your presence as fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. A mictum is a poem or song that is either golden or precious or both. And indeed, this psalm here is a poem or song that is, again, both golden and precious. Notice verse 5, as David is writing this psalm, he says, you are the portion of my inheritance. Listen, this is a glorious saying. Our inheritance is not just the good things that God gives to us, the Father of lights, from whom every good and perfect gift comes from. Our inheritance is better than that. Our inheritance is God himself. We'll talk about that in more detail when we come to church or to verse 5. Uh, the first half of this psalm, it speaks about him being our inheritance and it speaks of many of the blessings that come with that inheritance. But listen, usually to receive an inheritance, unfortunately, somebody has to die. Most inheritance are received after the death of the individual who leaves that inheritance for the next generation. And that's the case as well with him being our inheritance. Someone had to die. Because we are sinners separated from God. We are under wrath, under condemnation because of our rebellion. The law reveals that. The law is the tutor that shows us we need a savior. We're under the penalty of death. So someone needed to conquer death, sin, Hades, and Satan. And the very one whom is our inheritance is the very one who died for us. But again, the only way we can inherit him is that he had to conquer death and resurrect from the grave. And as the first half of this psalm speaks of him being our inheritance and many of the blessings that come with that inheritance, the second half of this psalm, verses 8 through 11, it is a prophetic word of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because listen, if he did not resurrect, we ain't going to inherit anything but eternal damnation. 
which actually in ourselves is due us. And God in his love sent his son while we were still sinners to die for us. And in that demonstrated his love for us. We're going to see that verses 8 through 11 were preached on the day of Pentecost. Isaiah 53 and other passages in the Old Testament, we're very familiar with them that speaks of the Lord's death, of him bearing our transgressions and so forth, by his stripes we're being healed and so forth. Psalm 16 is a verse we need to be, a chapter we need to be familiar with because it prophesied the resurrection of the Messiah so that we could inherit him so that we would have victory over death and have eternal life in him as he had victory over death when he resurrected he did not see corruption his soul was not subjected to Sheol he defeated those things and so let's start here in the first part of this and then we'll work towards down to the second half of it I think this is just loaded with truths and encouragements exhortations and so forth. So, verse 1, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. Now, again, this is a victim of David. David is writing this. And we have seen many places and see many places where David wisely puts his faith and trust in God Almighty when he thought he was going to expire. To preserve, preserve something is to keep it from expiring. Many times when he would cry out to the Lord for help, he would put his trust in the Lord above all other things. There's so many examples of this as I considered it. There were many ways we could go with it, just to give one of those examples. But I think an account that probably most of us are familiar with, if not all of us, is the account of Goliath. We know that Goliath, the Philistine general, was challenging the armies of God, the armies of the Israelites. God had given that land there around Gaza to Israel. In fact, he's given that to them today. And yet the Philistines were in a place where they were unrepentant and they were wanting to snuff out Israel. And in that, they were wanting to snuff out the promise of the Messiah who God said would come through the nation of Israel. And so he, here he is coming out as a giant, you know, we know the Bible records his height around nine and a half, ten feet tall, and there's absolutely no reason for us to question that. That's clear in the scripture. And not only was he coming out with physical intimidation, he was coming out with demonic intimidation. And the people of God were intimidated. The king who stood head and shoulders above all the other Israelites did not want to go out and fight them. Well, there was a young man named David who was not part of the army. His brothers were. And his father said, hey, I want you to go out and see how your brothers are doing. And by the way, here's a wheel of cheese to take to them. For some reason, that always stands out to me there in 1 Samuel 17. Bring your brothers some cheese. You know, they need their cheese, you know, so forth. So he goes out there and sees all this unfolding. And immediately, David saw this through a biblical perspective. He recognized the promise of God to give them victory over these enemies. And he looked around and he didn't see anyone acting on it. And he said, hey, I can defeat this Philistine. And the word got out and Saul brings him in. And, you know, you're just a kid. How can you defeat this Philistine? Well, notice 1 Samuel 17, verse 37. It says, moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. 
from man's perspective, no doubt when that lion came, it looked like David would expire. When that bear came along, it looked like he would expire. With this giant there, it looked like he would expire. But he said, listen, I put my faith in the Lord to preserve me. This wasn't him testing the Lord. This was the Lord preserving him as he trusted in the Lord. And then we know that Saul puts his gear on him and so forth and it doesn't fit him and he goes gets five smooth stones and goes out to fight this giant. And at 1 Samuel 17, 45, after the Philistine curses him, and if you really get into the Hebrew, he says some pretty ugly things. David responded to him and said, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and will strike you and take your, and, and take your head from you. See, it's one thing to say, I trust in the Lord in the back room, but now you're out face to face with the giant. He says, listen, I'm trusting in the Lord. The Lord is going to give victory. That was a wise thing to do. We know that the Lord gave him victory as the account unfolds and brought a victory to Israel through one man's faith. And God preserved him in the midst of a practical situation. And even in David's death, the Lord preserved him as he was a man of faith and no doubt went to Abraham's bosom and was delivered from Abraham's bosom when Christ descended to the earth and led captivity captive and is in the presence of the Lord to this day. He said, preserve me, O God, and you I put my trust. Now, as this is a messianic psalms, there's many that believe this first verse actually is also applicable to the ministry of Jesus Christ. When he was on earth, Jesus said, although he was 100% God, he was 100% man on earth. In John 5.30, he said, I can of myself do nothing as I hear I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own, but the will of the Father who sent me. And we see the Lord continually in his ministry here on earth putting his trust in the Father, seeking the Father, spending time in prayer with the Father, doing that as an example for us. And with that said, considering David and considering Jesus, let me ask you, do you ever feel like you are going to expire? When you feel like you are going to expire, do you ever perspire? And let me ask you, who do you put your trust in to preserve you both now and eternally? Isn't he the best one to turn to, to trust in? What's better than him? What's better than trusting in the Lord in the midst of the trial that you are in, in the midst of the situation where you're thinking, I may expire from this? Let me ask you, are men better to trust in than the Lord? Is money better to trust in than the Lord? As it's Sunday, is Monday better to trust in than the Lord? There's nothing better to trust in than Him. Psalm 20, verse 6, Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed and will answer Him from His holy heaven with the saving strength of His right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God they have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. Save, Lord. May the king answer us who call. What are we going to trust in? Horses and chariots that will expire or the eternal God who went to the cross to save us, who wants to stand us 
upright and rises up as we trust in him and his word and whatever comes our way, not only trusting him in the things of this life, but even knowing that when I do expire in this life, that's going to be in his perfect timing, that I will be preserved eternally with him in glory. Now notice verse 2, O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord, my goodness is nothing apart from you. Now notice here, David is having an internal conversation. O my soul, you have said. Think about this. We all do this, don't we? We all have internal conversations. Some of you might be having them right now. You're saying, are my kids behaving in Sunday school right now? Others, God forbid, are thinking, what are we going to do on the 4th of July? There's so much traffic. And now, if you weren't thinking of that, you may start thinking of that. I hope you don't. Someone's saying, is that a new blouse she's wearing? That looks good on her. But think about this. David is having this conversation with himself. Oh, my soul, you have said. And I want you to hear this this morning. Listen, the preacher or the voice, there's a lot of preachers, there's a lot of voices in this world, aren't there? I mean, there's more voices than ever. More people have a voice than ever. Uh, Someone said the other day, and I think this this was right on as the printing press was to the world and you know what? 500 years ago when it came about, the internet is to the world today where everyone can have a voice. And there's some bad voices, but it's also in a way a good thing. But hear this, listen, the preacher or voice, you're going to hear more than any other. Are you ready for this? You know whose voice it is? It's your own from a human perspective. There's more that goes on in your head. And let me ask you in that voice as you speak to yourself, are you speaking lies and untruths? Are you asking God to search you and know your heart and you're standing in the truth, encouraging yourself in the word of God? What are you doing? And we see David here encouraging himself in the word of God. Oh, my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. And so I feel like I'm going to expire, but I'm trusting in you to preserve me and you will preserve me because you are my Lord and your good, my goodness is nothing apart from you. I'm not standing in myself. I'm standing in you. Do you preach to yourself like that? Do you talk to yourself like that? Do you remind yourself of the scriptures? Do you encourage yourself in the Lord? Well, listen, if you're not, it's time that you start doing that. Taking your thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ, knowing who you are in the Lord, knowing what God has called you to. This is where most of the battle goes on, right between these two things right here on your head. And again, he says, Lord, you are my Lord. These are glorious words. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Is Jesus Christ your Lord today? Can you say amen to that? That's an encouragement no matter what you are facing. In the midst of feeling like you are going to expire, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus is my Lord and he is Lord above all things. He is Lord of Lords. He is King of Kings. It brings proper perspective to any situation. And again, oftentimes when we say you are my Lord, our thoughts And the enemy loves to infuse his thoughts. He'll say, but yeah, but you're not good. And that is true. In of ourselves, we are not good. Notice what he says here. My goodness is nothing apart from you. Now, again, I know on a human level, as we judge things and set up our standard of good and bad, there are some people, there are some neighbors that are better than others. I hope you're such a one. But by God's standard, we saw this last week in Psalm 14, 3. They have all turned aside. They have all together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. I hate to burst your bubble if you say, but not me. I'm good. We're transgressors of God's law. God's standard is perfection. 
and we fall short of it. And the scriptures say if we break one point of it, we break the whole thing. We're in rebellion against Him. We're under wrath. We're under condemnation in ourselves. But if our faith is in Christ, we're not apart from Him. We are in Him. And in Him we have perfect goodness. In Him we are saved. As Hebrews 7.25 says, we are saved to the uttermost. We are washed. We are cleansed. And that's a glorious thing. Notice again, my goodness is nothing apart from you. And, and this is a word of warning. Because oftentimes we get saved and God starts doing a work in us. We start bearing fruit and so forth. And we get our eyes off the one who has saved us and given us that fruit. And we start looking at what we're doing. And we say, yeah, you know what? Uh, Jesus is awesome, but look how good I am. And this is where a lot of heresy comes in when people start saying, listen, I'm pretty good here. And I kind of think if you are like me, that actually is what saves you along with Jesus. So it's Jesus plus some things that we are doing that are good. And you see this all over the world. I mean, this is a doctrine that sadly is alive today as it was in the time of, of Christ in the early church where, again, it was Jesus plus A, B, C, and D. It's, you know what, he's good, but we're good too in doing these things. And if you want to put your faith in yourself to save you, you're not going to find perfect goodness. You're going to find sin in that. And that's not going to save you. That's going to damn you is what that's going to do. Our goodness is found totally in Him. And if we take some of Him out of it to add us, to save us, we are not going to find goodness there. Because even in all the good works that I have done, and boy, there's a lot of them. I could just spend the rest of the morning talking about it. No. Listen. There's a little bit of Steve in it that just corrupts it a bit. Now, God in His grace and His mercy, absolutely, you know, overlooks that little bit of Steve or the lot of Steve that's in it. But let's remember, our goodness is nothing apart from Him, amen? Verse 3, as for saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. That's a huge verse here. As for the saints on the earth, we need to ask, who are the saints on the earth? Now, there are some groups that say the saints are the ones that certain men deem have done some extraordinary things, therefore they are the saints. Because these things he's done, there's goodness in them and the things that they've done, therefore they're the exalted ones, they're the saints. That is completely and utterly unbiblical. That is a doctrine of demons and a philosophy of men that you do not find in Scripture at all. Listen, a saint is one who is holy. And we're not holy through what we do. We're not made holy through miracles, whether they are genuine or just man-made or demonic manifestations, lying signs and wonders. And there's all sorts of those varieties in the world. That's not the thing that makes us a saint. What makes you a saint? What makes you holy? 1 Corinthians 1, 2, to the church of God, which is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, notice here, with all who are in every place, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice, all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, they are the ones who are saints. Have you called on the name of Christ this morning? Can you say amen to that? This room's full of saints. And notice what he says about us that have called on his name. They are the excellent ones. Listen, you're excellent. 
Now, again, practically, we look at our lives and we say, yeah, I'm going to have to take your word on that one, Lord. (laughs) Absolutely, we want to strive for practical excellence. Part of sanctification is a process of practically being sanctified, growing in Him. And He who began that good work will be faithful to complete it. But positionally, we are excellent because Christ is excellent. And our position before God is not in ourselves but it is standing in the finished work of Christ under the blood of Jesus Christ. And again, this has to do with the truth, telling ourselves the truth of who we are in Him. And we are excellent because Jesus is excellent. And then notice what he says next, in whom is all my delight. This isn't David speaking, this is the Lord speaking through David. In whom is all my delight. Delight means all pleasure. All the Lord's delight is in you. His pleasure is in you. And that just makes me say, wow, I don't get that. But let's remember our excellence is in Christ. We are saved through Christ. Through Christ we are forgiven. We are washed. We are righteous. We are accepted. We are friends of God. And through Christ we are children of God. 1 John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. Are there any parents here this morning? Do you not delight in your children? We're like, well, not all the time, but... (laughs) I mean, we delight in our children. They're a gift from God. They're a blessing indeed. We delight in them. Do you not delight in talking about your children? The blessings you see in their life, their attributes, and so forth. Listen, just don't live vicariously through them. But we delight in them. Every once in a while, you know, I have four kids, and I'll I'll be talking about them to someone, boasting in them. God forgive me if I cross the line of sin in that. But I delight in them. And one of them will, maybe who I'm talking about will, will hear me. They'll come in on the conversation, and then, They'll say, oh, you're talking about me. And I think it blesses them to hear, you know, saying good things. Oh, you're still talking about me. I'll say, well, we'll balance this out later. Me and mom will talk about you. (laughs) (laughs) But listen, we're his children and he delights in us. And and we can rest in that, not in our own goodness, but in the goodness of Jesus Christ. We got to get our minds renewed and know who we are in the Lord. And then notice verse four, it's kind of, the, the opposite of, of him delighting in us and us delighting in him. This speaks to the unbeliever, but it also speaks to the believer who's not in that place of delighting in the Lord, not walking in who he is in Christ. It says, their sorrow shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings and blood offering, I will, uh, I, their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take their names on my lips. Listen, when the follower of Christ is hasting after another God, the Lord says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. But there are times when we hasten after other things, when Jesus isn't first. Let's be truthful and honest about it. Whether it's something we're involved in or something that's, you know, material, and God forbid, perhaps, you know, it's directly speaking, seeking after the things of the enemy. But when you start making an idol, there's a spirit that will get behind it. The Bible makes that really clear. When we hasten after those things, there's sorrow that's multiplied. 
Because we're going to see in a minute, the Lord is our inheritance. He's also our cup. And we have Christ. Our cup, though, is what we put in our cup. And when we put other gods in our cup, it is going to multiply our sorrows, not our joy. And the Lord allows that because He wants to be in our cup. He's the giver of life. And so it's a chastisement that He brings upon His children whom He delights in and whom He loves. When your children misbehave, do you no longer love them? No, you still delight in them and you say, I want to correct this child out of love for them because if I don't correct them, the world will. and The world's going to beat them up a lot more than me coming in and lovingly correcting them. Sin always brings sorrow, though. Sin, generally, most of the time, is pleasurable for a season. We're going to be truthful here about these things. But in the long run, it brings sorrow. Proverbs 22.8, he who sows iniquity will reap sorrow and the rod of his anger will fail. We got to remember that when we're tempted with sin, with hastening after other gods. Boy, I mean, between the enemy and our flesh, these things can look really good, can't they? But we need to see past the cheese and the mousetrap. See that snap effect that's going to come, the chastisement of the Lord. And yet even throughout the Word of God, there's times when we see even the people of God not just going after, but hastening after other gods. You think about the Lord delivering Israel out of Egypt. And Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to get instruction from the Lord. And they start saying, man, we, we don't know what happened to this Moses guy. And they turn to Aaron and they say, in Exodus 32, come make us gods that shall go before us. Now, if you have to make your God, that's problematic. I always laugh when the Word of God was, hey, you stole my gods. What kind of God is that? And so they give him all his earrings, and he fashions this idol, and then it comes out of the fire, and he says, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And a party breaks out, a godless one. And I imagine it was in the flesh Quite a pleasurable night of debauchery. But boy, sorrow came in the morning. Because God said to Moses, you better get down there and deal with this. A plague broke out. Broke out. 3,000, he didn't want to repent, died. And the rest had to drink water with the gold flakes of that idol that was grinded down and thrown in there. They didn't get any of their earrings or jewelry back. I've always thought that perhaps the gold in that water, though, as they did that out of faith, perhaps maybe that was a healing agent to heal them from the plague. I know silver and different metals contain properties. Just, just a thought I had. I'm not trying to build a doctrine around or anything, but just a thought. Because I know even in his chast chastising of us, he loves us. And he even uses the chastising for our good. Hastening after other gods. Some of you may have heard this this week. Very, very grieving. Um. Presbyterian USA, which at one point was fairly conservative, they had their general assembly this week. And one of the points of emphasis as they started this meeting was to pray to another God. They prayed to Allah at their general convention. They said, Allah bless us and bless our families and bless our Lord. Lead us in a straight path, the path of all prophets Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad. And not only did they pray to another god, a demon god. Listen, Krishlam is a doctrine of demons. 
The God of Islam and the God of the Bible are different. The God of Islam says there is only one God and he has no son. And so please don't make the mistake of listening to Rick Warren and others that say they're the same God. They're not at all. And they cried out to a demon and then they included Jesus in the list with Muhammad who married an eight-year-old and consummated that when she was 11, a pedophile. And they compared Jesus to a pedophile whom God would forgive if he repented but chose not to. The prayer went on to include a prayer of peace on the bigots and the Islamophobes. In other words, those that would say, they're not the same God. Guys like me this morning would be called a bigot and Islamophobe when it's, listen, no. Their sorrow shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. That is not God. We need to call out to the living almighty God. Sadly, though, this stuff is just exploding. People preaching Issa, not Jesus. Issa is the Jesus of the Quran who did not die for our sins, who was just a prophet whom Judas took his place on the cross. You got to be very, very careful. There's groups. I'll tell you about a group. And listen, I'm just going to share this to be truthful, to educate. Some people get upset when I name names at times, but I think we need to have accountability. For many years, I think YWAM was a, was a pretty good missions group. They, they're part of the First Gods movement now, which they'll go into a country and they find out, well, who do you worship? And they'll say, well, Allah or Issa. And they say, well... We're Allah, or we believe in the Issa, of, you know, who's not Jesus, but Issa in the Quran. And they say, well, that's really the God of heaven, so you can keep worshiping him, but you just need to know it's the God of heaven, not this demon. That's grossly unbiblical. Because they say, when at the Tower of Babel, everyone went out with the knowledge of God. Listen, Babel's the mother of all harlots. <laughs> God scattered them, not because they were worshiping him, they were worshiping the sun. Sadly, though, their sorrows will be multiplied to hasten after another God. And I know the sorrows of Presbyterian USA are going to be multiplied. They need to repent. I know in our own community in Paso Robles, there is a very, very large Presbyterian USA church up there. And I'm wondering what they're going to do with this. I hope and pray they disaffiliate or they try to call to accountability. I would hope that they're addressing this for the sake of their people and of God Almighty. Listen what he says here, their drink offerings and blood, of their, their drink offerings of blood I will not offer nor take their names on their lips. In other words, if you want to hasten other gods, don't come and worship me. It's lip service. I'm not going to receive it. This is why practically for a Christian, there's a breaking of fellowship in that. And God will chastise us with those sorrows to bring us back into fullness of fellowship. But to these that want to preach another gospel or preach Christian, they're the same God. That's not the gospel that saves souls. That's a gospel that damns souls to hell. Another gospel that's not the gospel. 1 Corinthians 10, 21. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and of the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Listen, God doesn't share his glory with anyone. We don't want to provoke him to jealousy. As believers and being chastised, 
And this world's provoking him to jealousy. We read he's going to come back, and yes, Jesus is going to judge the world. He's going to trample the nations that are in rebellion. And that's why it is so important we preach the gospel today to see people saved. Verse 5, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. We just spoke of this. Yes, he is our inheritance, and there's nothing better than that. You know, all these books are written about heaven, and, and, and you know what? The ones that are not experience-based, that are scripturally-based, there's, there's some truth in them, but so oftentimes I see in those books, they're, they're trying to get everyone pumped up about heaven. And heard one lately, and heaven, we're going to have sports and activities and so forth, and it's just like, I, I, I don't know. I don't see that on the Word. Maybe we will. If we both have perfect bodies, though, who's going to win? Another tie, you know? We tied again. It'd be like, he'd say, everyone gets a trophy, you know? <laughs> Our inheritance is him. It's not the good gifts, it's the giver of good gifts. God Almighty is our inheritance. And notice, he's my cup, and as I already explained, the cup is what, what you're putting in, sort of, in your life. And Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. So we have the inheritance. Are we partaking of it in our cup, though? And then he says, you maintain my lot, and indeed he does. Not only are we saved in him, not only is he our inheritance, but he keeps us. Verse 6, the lions have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. The lions would be uh, boundaries or a land that is pleasant. And his word sets, up, sets boundaries up for us. His word, a boundary is, listen, this is the boundary. Don't seek after other gods. That's a boundary. And that's a pleasant boundary. Because when you seek other, after other gods, he's provoked to jealousy and your sorrows are going to be multiplied. Wouldn't you say that's a good boundary? God's saying, I, I don't want you to worship demons. I don't want you praying to demons in the general assembly. Do you think that would be a no-brainer? And those boundaries are good. It, it's to put us in a pleasant place in fellowship with them. And indeed, we have a good inheritance. He's our inheritance. And all the blessings He bestows on us. And we can partake of that inheritance today. And you know what? Abiding in Him. He's the vine, we are the branches. And then we bear much fruit. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. Verse 7, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons, sessions. His counsel is his word, and it is good counsel. And it instructs us even in the night sessions. And this isn't a contradiction saying your counsel's good, but my heart addresses me at night. It's, listen, even at night, your counsel instructs me. Practically, when we are up worrying about things, we need to go back to the counsel of the Lord. And I think this also speaks of the time of darkness and the midnight hour where there's the counsel of the Lord available to put oil in our lamp. And we want to be found in that place. It is seasons. After the first servant, someone said, that's not seasons, it's sessions. And I listened to them. I shouldn't have, I guess. 
Maybe they had the message or something. I don't know. 8 through 11, it is um, a prophetic word about Christ and his resurrection. Notice here. It says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad. My glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in shield, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Again, we're familiar with Isaiah 53. So many of these prophecies about his death, him dying for our sins. But are we familiar with Psalm 16? It speaks of his resurrection. At Pentecost, there in Acts 2, when Peter is preaching, he brings them right to this text. He says in Acts 2, 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, and it's Psalm 16, 8 through 11 here. Again, you'll not leave my soul in Hades, nor allow your Holy One to see corruption. That speaks of resurrection. That speaks of victory over death. Later on in Acts 13, Paul preached this passage too. Acts 13, 35. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and buried, uh, was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. His physical body saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, that through this man is preached to you forgiveness of sins and by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you cannot be justified by the law of Moses. We're justified through Christ, through his death and his resurrection. And if he didn't resurrect, we shouldn't even be here today. We're meant to be most pitied. As we read Paul there in 1 Corinthians 15, if there's no resurrection, we are meant to be most pitied. We should eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. But praise God, he did conquer the grave. Now, quickly, let's just break down this, these four, and, and then we'll take communion. Again, this is spoken of concerning Christ here in his ministry on earth. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Jesus always, always did the Father's will. The Father's will was always before him. And he was never moved. He was tempted in every way but did not sin. That's huge. He fasted for 40 days and Satan tempted him three different ways and he put that down through the word of God. In the garden of Gethsemane, he said, if there's any other way, nevertheless, let thy will be done. When he was betrayed by Judas, he called him friend. Even on the cross, when he was being jeered, he was not moved. And notice verse 9, therefore my heart is glad, my glory rejoices, my flesh will also rest in hope. And his heart was glad going to the cross knowing that he was going to save us. Knowing as well that he would resurrect and his flesh would not see corruption, but he would defeat death so that we could defeat death and conquer those things in Christ Jesus. And so the Lord said, I've set the Lord always before me. Let me ask you, who are you setting before you? Every day we have a choice. What am I going to set before me, God or another God? 
the Word of God or the philosophies of men. The counsel of God or the counsel of my own heart. We have this hope as well where he says, my flesh also will rest in hope. We're going to have victory over death. Yes, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, these bodies go back to the earth, but they're going to be resurrected. He's the first fruit of the resurrection, and he rejoiced in that. On earth, knowing he had an eternal perspective of mine, I'm going to go to the cross, but I'm doing it for the joy set before me. A dear brother in our fellowship passed away last week. Leif, you may know him as Leif. We called him Leif for eight years, and he was too polite to correct us. Older gentleman, he usually came to first service. Every once in a while, he'd come to second service. Last year or so, he had a walker. He'd always have a, a hat on, or there'd from time to time be a Band-Aid on his head. He always, in the first service, would sit over here, and you'd always see him worshiping the Lord with his hands up, even in his frail state. A few days before he passed, myself and a few of the elders, we got to go pray with him. And he shared with me, you know, I'm ready to go be with the Lord, but I, I'm sad because I wanted to be part of the rapture. And I said, you know, Brother Leif, you're, you're going to be part of the rapture, whether he comes before you pass or if you pass. In fact, you're going to be raptured before us if we're still here. Because you're going to come back with them in spirit and your body will be resurrected first. Then those that are alive and remain will be caught up. And he got the biggest smile and he said, I never thought of it like that. <laughs> and the Lord sent the taxi for him a couple of days later. We have that hope. Verse 10, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor allow your Holy One to see corruption. Again, this is a prophetic word that Christ Jesus fulfilled at his resurrection. And in him, we have that hope through Christ. Verse 11, you show me the path of life. And the path of life was Jesus, his eyes set on the Father. The path of life also was found in his death and resurrection. For a seed to bring forth life, it has to be planted in the ground. He's the first fruit, and he is our life. Jesus said in John 4, 6, 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Again, in your presence is fullness of joy. In his presence, that's when our cup, he's our inheritance, but in his presence and fellowship and abiding in him, that's when our cup is full of, of, of his presence, and there's a fullness of joy found in that. And again, when we start filling our cup with another God, with other pursuits, it might be pleasurable those first few sips, but soon after that it begins to bring sorrow to the believer and to the unbeliever if they never repent of that. Again, it's a sorrowful thing. So many running around just saying, I'm, I'm just trying to find life and it's only found in Him. And if they die in that state, an eternal place of sorrow, where Jesus said there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. And he doesn't want anyone to go there, and that's why he laid down his life. And again, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And Jesus knew he'd be at the right hand of the Father forevermore. The right hand being the hand of power. Pleasures forevermore. And him being God at the right hand of the Father. And in saving us because as he is our inheritance, we're his inheritance. Not that he needs us for anything, because he is God. He's perfectly sufficient in himself. But 
even in that, he delights in us, which this is like, you know. I would, I, 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 I don't think it's very hard to see that this is indeed a mictum, a golden and a precious psalm.